Welcome to Technoviews, a series of interview videos and podcasts with major figures in the humanities and social sciences on topics at the intersection between technology, society, and culture in Asia and the world. My name is Joseph Bosco. I am a research associate in the Department of Anthropology at Washington University in St. Louis, and also adjunct associate professor at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Our guest today is Dr. Lin Zhang, author of the book, The Labor of Reinvention, Entrepreneurship in the New Chinese Digital Economy, published in 2023 by Columbia University Press. Dr. Zhang earned a PhD in communication at the University of Southern California, and is currently an associate professor of communication and media studies at the University of New Hampshire. Hi, Lynn. Welcome to Technoviews. Thank you. Thank you, Joe.、Um, it's such a pleasure and honor to be、uh, talking with you here. So, entrepreneurship is a key concept in your book. How do you define an, an entrepreneur? It can be defined broadly as anyone who starts or invests in a business. Or more narrowly, as per Joseph Schumpeter's definition, which focuses on innovation, converting a new idea or invention into a successful enterprise. By his definition, opening another bread shop or making a profit by arbitrage is not entrepreneurship because it's not new or innovative. So, how do you define entrepreneurship and the entrepreneur in your book, and why is this important? Yeah, it's a good question. So I, it's actually a question I, you know, like I struggle with. I, you know, read, had to really read a lot, uh, in, you know, for that, in, including uh Joseph Shump, uh Shump Peter's uh theorization of entrepreneurship. So in the book, I actually try to distinguish entrepreneurialism from entrepreneurship to kind of foreground my uh central analytic of what I call labor of entrepreneurial reinvention. So in my you know tracing of the genealogy of entrepreneurship, I found that its meaning definitely has been you know changing with time, right? So in classical economics, entrepreneurship was largely subsumed in other elements、uh, of production, either as skilled labor or as you know providers of capital. So you can see from the very beginning, entrepreneurship did not quite into、uh, fit into the kind of Marxian dichotomy of capitalist versus proletarian that that. There, right? So, but it was really, you know, after neoclassical economic theory had elevated the market as a kind of counterweight to the state in the mid to late twentieth century, that um, you know, the the concept of entrepreneur, not laborers, right, came to be seen as a kind of motor, uh, important driver of economic development. And I think, um, you know, uh, Schumpeter's theorization of entrepreneurship centered on disruptive innovation, as you mentioned, came out of the same same. Trend. So,、um, as we had entered financialized capitalism,、right? entrepreneurialism, I think, became really a kind of a dominant ideology, right? So, in the book,、um, if you you know readers、uh, read my book, they will see that I really define、uh, entrepreneurialism as a kind of elevation and investment, and also a kind of enthusiasm for the individuals.、Uh, Uh, individualized entrepreneur as a kind of heroic driver of economic development and the kind of faith that they have, right? In 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 uh you know it being fric frictionless, it、uh, be able to drive you know energize capitalism. 
So unlike entrepreneurship, entre,、uh, entrepreneurialism is more of an ideology formed as a result of the kind of hegemonic、uh, ascendance of neoliberal politics globally. And as I mentioned in the book, its hegemony actually peaked、uh, around two thousand tens when we witnessed, on one hand. I would say unprecedented excessive liquidity in the capital market, right?、Um, which you know, I think we're in a kind of different situation now, especially in China.、Uh, on the other hand,、uh, there's also this kind of increasingly blurred boundaries between you know work and labor、uh, and entrepreneurship, with a rise of you know things like e-commerce, ride-hailing, you know co-working, and all these、uh, different material conditions, technological conditions. And by this time, I think entrepreneurship's meaning. Has significantly been, you know, broadened to refer to not just starting up a venture-backed、uh, enterprise based on disruptive innovation, but also, for example, self-employed labor practices like like selling stuff online, driving a Uber,、um, and I, an important impetus behind such proliferation of entrepreneurship is,、uh, I think, definitely corporate branding and also state backing of these labor practices as empowerment, you know, autonomy, and also. Glamorous tech entrepreneurship, right? So that's how I, you know, my kind of thinking process through、um, uh, understanding what entrepreneurship means at the current conjuncture. Yeah. Okay.、Um, yeah. There, there, there's so many interesting ideas behind that, and it's, it's such a,、uh, you know, it, the, the book is has has a lot of explores this in a number of ways. But maybe just briefly, can you just tell me how you, you, right now in your answer? Readers might be interested. Do you do you view this as liberating and empowering, or、mm. or not? Yeah, for me, it's definitely.、Uh, if you see, read my book.、Uh, you know, one of、um, the my、uh, the readers、uh, told me, "Oh, you, you have so many words of contradictions in your book," <laughs> and and that's.、Uh, You know, kind of describe the the way I I think, but also I feel like for me definitely it it is a kind of a contradiction, a bundle of contradictions, right? So and even you know working in academia, we're all entrepreneurs <laughs> in our、right. own ways, right? So definitely that comes with it. Uh, you know, academia as a profession, all these kind of freedom, autonomy to do things that we really to do. We can balance between teaching and you know、uh, research and all that, but also being entrepreneurial, which means that. We have to keep, you know, motivating ourselves. You know, take on new risk. You know, venture into new areas, and you know, finding resources, finding money to support the kind of things that we have to do. I think that mechanism is not just, you know,、um, exclusive to the people I study, but also, you know,、yeah. broadly defines this kind of contradiction. Something that we have to live with. Um. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. So the book focuses on three different phenomena or cases.、Um, can you tell us what are the cases and why you chose them? Why they're interesting? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So in the book, I weave together, you know, the experiences of、um, you know one of Sorry's peasant family e-commerce owners who actually you know return to rural villages from previously hyper exploitative and also you know low-paying urban jobs to basically trading. 
village um, produced um, handicrafts uh, on the internet, right? And also there uh, one chapter about you know young transnationally mobile middle class Chinese women who make their livings by reselling Western brands on social media. And uh, uh, there is also uh, two chapters on uh, relatively young IT startup entrepreneurs, you know, bidding for venture capital in Beijing's Zhongguancun, or you know, sometimes known as China Silicon Valley, and definitely you know Shenzhen now is competing with Beijing for that title. But uh, it definitely it's one of China's science and technology center. So by choosing these stories, you know, I think the book give us um, sort of. Um, Urban, rural, and also transnational dimension into the kind of larger story of um China's soaring entrepreneurialism, and it also gave me opportunity to talk about you know the intersectionality of identities in relation to uh, all these different locales because as we know locales in China definitely you know it matters a lot, um and also um you know I have to say a lot of that you know for for ethnographers is always about access and access to China these days. Are getting more increasingly difficult, right? So a lot of these are also, you know, my personal connections, as I, you know, told the book, uh, the stories in the book, how I got to know these people. So definitely through, you know, personal connections that made it more, also more interesting for me and me myself to explore. So I hope they, you know, together they give us a kind of multi-angle lens into um the the, the rise of tech entrepreneurialism. Um, but also as a qualitative researcher, I'm not claiming. I usually I'm not claiming that these uh, three groups are statistically representative of the Chinese population, right? In fact, I always think of you know studying. Uh, China or big you you know com complex regions like China like a blind man feeding the elephant for the first time basically right depending on you know which part of China you are focusing on you are touching you might come to very different conclusions or you know uh, observations so all I'm do, uh, trying to do here is to share with the readers uh, what I observed based on my you know own angles in China and a lot of them are also personally informed. Okay. Yeah, early on in the book, you say, quote, the goal of this book is to demystify entrepreneurialism by locating the source of capital's increased profits in the new regime of labor and changing production relations, unquote. Mm. Can you explain what you mean by the new regime of labor and what changes you're pointing to in the relations of production? Mm. Right. So I think the newest or novelty of entrepreneur labor is shaped um, most prominently by, I would say, on the new venture capital regime and also new uh, technologies like digital platforms, uh, social media and uh, smartphone apps uh, when I was you know, doing my research and now increasingly AI technologies as well. Um, and, you know, these these things, of course, have rendered a boundary between workplace and home. You know, work and non-work increasingly um, blurred, and as has also given rise to new types of work uh, workplaces like co-working, for example, and you know, co-working cafes and incubators in the cities. You know, transforming uh, both the countryside and cities. So um, instead of working for an employer for wages, for example, the entrepreneurs I met in Zhongguancun in Beijing, they work for Kenter Capital. Or you can say, you know, they like to believe that they work for themselves uh, with venture capital backing, right? So this kind of entrepreneurial self-driven mentality, often uh, what I've observed goes to be beyond the small team of uh, co-founders to impact 
ordinary employees, as the size of companies keep expanding, you know, through incentive mechanism like stock options and also KPI metrics. Uh, and if you look at, you know, the e-commerce sellers in Taobao villages or those women engaged in social media reselling, uh, you see that they essentially also work for themselves. But they say at the same time, their activities are also dictated by uh, platform mechanisms, uh, algorithms, right, rules, and also management um, strategies. And this is very different from labor and production relations, say, uh, for employees working in an offline shopping mall, for example, you know, people studied service industry in China for, for a long time, and also are renting a storefront in a traditional marketplace, right? So it's, it's kind of different logic underlying there. So um, I think both the new tech companies and definitely entrepreneurial states trying to reinvent the economy, they definitely benefit from these new production relations and new regime of labor. But by trumping up the benefits and also, um, I would say the kind of aura of this new entrepreneurship without due uh, recognition of them also as laborers, um, you know, this kind of a corporate state nexus uh, is also offloading responsibilities of say labor rescaling, for example, social welfare and production and also financial risk onto individuals and their families, right? So as I documented in the book, it's usually those who are already disadvantaged in a way that are, you know, suffer more when, you know, risk really, you know, uh, went out of scale and, right. Yeah, mm. yeah. Well, th th this raises the, the next question I have is, which is, you know, the book quotes Li Keqiang as saying, uh -huh. uh, quote, Prom uh, promoting entrepreneurship and innovation helps restructure the system of wealth redistribution and enhances social justice. This also opens up space for young people, especially mm -hmm. those from poor families, to seek social mobility, unquote. Mm -hmm. Now, this, this sound, seems like a very surprising notion, I think, at least to a Westerner. Uh, contrary to the sort of the history of capitalism, as recently again demonstrated by Thomas Piketty in his book, Capital in the 21st Century, which shows an increase in inequality. So why did this notion gain so much traction in China? Why did they expect entrepreneurialism to reduce inequality? Mm. This is such a good question, right? I think it actually points at some of the central contradictions of uh, the, the CPC's ideology at the current uh, moment. And to be honest, I myself are also kind of, uh, you know, struggling to understand. <laughs> um, on one hand, you'll see, you know, that, that CPC leadership recognize the importance of redressing social, um, you know, inequality and the importance yes. of redistribution after decades of developmental expansion and rapid growth, right? They know right. that this is not sustainable. And that's why you'll see policies like po poverty reduction, you know, rural rejuvenation. But on the other hand, you also see that the state is very reluctant in any form of you know radical redistributive measures right so one example you know I you know often came in mind is that you know the state refused to offer relief money directly to consumers and citizens during and also following the COVID-19 pandemic like what the US did basically and I think the rationale um, you know there's a huge big debate among you know social scientists and economists why you know what what we should do. I think the rationale behind it is that without dollar hegemony, China cannot afford to, you know, just print out money and send um, off to citizens to buy votes. And of course, as our authoritarian one party system, the CPC and Xi Jinping also does not have the sort of pressure to to buy to win votes, right? Um 
but at the same time, you also see local state came into deep debts, right? Because of the exorbitant and wasteful zero COVID control measures, especially in the last few months before, you know, the poorly open and national reopening. Right. So and also immediately after recommending, you hear, you know, the, 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 the late Premier Li Keqiang applauding so-called street store economy or di tan jingji. Right. So encouraging <laughs> flexible self-employment and informal economy to counter the soaring unemployment, especially the youth unemployment China is still battling with at this moment. So I think this, you know, for me, this ideology should be situated in several you know, both historical and contemporary threads of thinking and the situation. So first, China's socialist supposed history, and, and also, you know, CPC and Chinese general public's fearful memory of uh, radical redistribution, you know, campaigns during the socialist movements, such as the Great Leap Forward and Cultural Revolution came to mind. And for CPC and, you know, the, the socialist experiment, though, you know, leaving big legacy on contemporary Chinese society, ultimately did not work in helping China catch up with capitalist democracies in terms of economic well-being. But the post-marketization did work for China, right? So that's when people learned to become entrepreneurialized themselves, right? So whether it's grassroots or more kind of lead form of, of entrepreneurialization. And I think second is also rooted in the kind of a dual urban rural structure uh, perpetuated through policies over the years that, you know, whenever unemployment pressure runs high in the city, the government could always send, uh, you know, people, especially young people back to the countryside and, you know, uh, treat migrant workers as a kind of constant reserve army of laborers. Right. So that's, I think, partially what, you know, the rural rejuvenation is also manifested in that regard. Um, and, and it should also, I think it should also be uh, situated, um, you know, in the last at the current conjuncture, the escalating kind of competition between U.S. and China, which has made the parties, the Chinese parties did uh, even more reluctant about radical redistribution because it feels that it needs to invest into spearheading strategic industries uh, like semiconductors or, you know, Belltech or others to, to counter U.S. sanctions in a way, right? So I think the competition kind of has compromised uh, long-term thinking in China, as, just as it did to policymakers in the U.S. to a certain extent, right? So I feel that's the answers that I can sort of mobilize to answer this really kind of big puzzle, but I think it's also very central to understanding the CPC's, uh, you know, governing philosophy at, at the moment. Can you tell us the story of uh, one or two of the women you interviewed, uh -huh. like Hua or, uh -huh. or Wei or Xiaolan, uh, maybe with a little bit more of the family and educational and work background uh -huh. of the person than is in the book? So we can understand their life course and motivations. There, there's sure. a lot of there. There are a lot of very interesting um, snapshots of these people. But I sort of wanted to to know more about yeah. some of them. So maybe just pick one and yeah. uh, give us a little bit more of her her total background. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Since you mentioned Hua first, I'll you know talk a little bit more about her. She, yeah, she had left a good impression on me. Uh, very interesting figure. I remember the first time I met her was in a kind of village um, handicraft wholesale shop, and she was talking to a bunch of 
uh, guys complaining about you know how e-commerce um, and also rising RMB to dollar exchange rate is killing export-oriented handicraft industries. So she immediately stood out as the only women in the group. Usually you don't see you know women engage in this kind of conversation. He's not uh, um, only very you know articulate and also uh, out spoken but different from um, many other women I met in the in the village who try to stay away from politics so later I learned a little bit more about her so she immediately on that day she take, took me back to her you know uh, family home and you know treat me to a dinner and we chatted and she uh, she I learned she was one of the most successful wholesale traders uh, in the area uh, before e-commerce became prevalent and 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 like many others, uh, you know, of her trade, um, they struggled with uh, product sourcing. Uh, that a, a situation that is, you know, uh, only worsened by appreciating yuan at that time, and also you know, squeezed out by by e-commerce. And and she was from a nearby village, and actually married into the village in her early twenties. So which marked her as a kind of outsider, if you know, like a Chinese lineage based <laughs> uh, right. uh, relationship in the in the countryside. And I think that's why she 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 thought she has to really try harder, you know, out be more outspoken to kind of fit in. I don't know whether that helped her or not. But she told me that she um was a very smart kid in school, and with a really amazing memory. And I really can tell because, you know, she really liked to cite books she read, uh, you know, or use big words like Chinese idioms when we, you know, in our conversation. Um, but at the age of 14, I remember uh, correctly, if I remember correctly, her dad passed away. So she had to really quit middle school at that time and started to work um just to uh, support uh, her younger siblings, especially her brother, to you know finish school, and she worked first as an apprentice to a seamstress, and then uh, started on her own you know tailoring uh, business, and. Um, um, uh, so like all women, you know, other women in, in the area, she also learned bu uh, brush handicraft making from an early age. Uh, and because of her training at the same trace, I think she was more creative and uh, dexterous as a weaver, which eventually served her very well when, you know, together with her husband, she actually started their own business as a wholesaler, subcontractor actually for export companies. Um, and, you know, she uh, collected um, handicrafts from home-based women weavers, and also she would come up with her own designs in collaboration with these export businesses. And when I first met her in 2014, her export business was already, you know, starting to be negatively impacted, as I mentioned in a kind of little anecdote. And at that, that time, I remember she was trying to reinvent herself as a Taobao entrepreneur, and she actually hired a few weavers to work uh, for her, her new Taobao business in the family courtyard. I saw them, you know, waving in her courtyard. And a few months into her venture, a couple of women actually left to start their own Taobao business because at that time, that's the thing to do. Everyone wants to give it a try, right? And eventually, you can imagine the competition got so fierce because everyone was doing that. No one wants to make things. So all of them were all of them were squeezed out uh, by uh, you know a few big bigger sellers. 
So the women who left uh, her courtyard uh, business either you know went back to weaving for other Taobao business or left to work as service workers in uh, the county seat, you know, supermarket cashiers and restaurant servers, things like that. And Hua actually, when I you know uh, reconnect with her over the years, I learned she went back to wholesale business and. And it's now mainly sells through AliExpress um, directly to foreign retailers, actually, because AliExpress compared to, you know, the domestic driven apps um, requires less maintenance. And she told me and, and, and kind of less technical and marketing uh, sophistication to manage. Um, but she definitely, because of, you know, specializing in wholesaling, continue to do that, uh, makes less money than retailer, uh, e-commerce sellers in the, in the village. So I think her in, uh, story is interesting in a way that like many Chinese um, uh, villagers and people, you know, grew up in the countryside, uh, they are very smart people and uh, they were basically sometimes confined in the countryside because of lack of opportunities or family circumstances, all this kind of very arbitrary rural urban hukou or, you know, registration status system. Um, and, and also being a woman <laughs> makes it harder for her. Uh, and I think she has that kind of really feminist, uh, you know, driving her to prove herself to be, you know, successful, worthy, equal to men. And I remember I, when I was doing the field work, I, I, I brought um, uh, my car to the countryside and drove a car and, you know, pick her up. And she always, you know, you know, uh, said that I really can admire how you have the freedom to drive your own car and do the research. So I can tell that she's kind of aspiring to a different lifestyle. But I think she also, you know, made the best of what, what she has and, you know, continue to try to be successful and, you know, make a meaningful and not just profitable living for herself uh, in kind of this kind of circumstances. And she's, I would say, pr pretty successful as a, as a woman in the uh, of her age, and I think she's now in her uh, early 50s. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> okay. Um, so do you think that the cultural importance of entrepreneurship in China is related to its negation under Maoist socialism? And I, I should say I, I hesitate to agree with this idea because entrepreneurship is has also been so highly valued in Hong Kong and Taiwan in uh, in recent years, and which didn't go through a socialist or communist policies. So what do you think? Yeah, I would say that, um, you know, um, you know I, I, I'm trying to resist against any kind of culturally essential arguments there. And there's also this kind of tradition of arguing that, you know, Chinese, ethnic Chinese, whether they're in Hong Kong or, you know, in Singapore or in the U.S., even like ethnic entrepreneurs um, are entrepreneurial in a way that, um, but I do, in my observation, see that Chinese like to work for themselves uh, <laughs> whenever they can, uh, whether it's, you know, wh where, wherever uh, they are based. I think it's, I want, um, my uh, kind of uh, argument is that it's sometimes, uh, if you look at the history, for example, of Asian Americans in the U.S., it's sometimes sexism. Uh, vented. It's sometimes conditioned by, you know, their lack of resources and what they can bring to the country, what they think, you know, the advantages. For example, Koreans are also, you know, uh, very um, um, entrepreneurial. 
um, and I, I read, uh, you know, uh, for for uh, 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 in the early years after nineteen sixty five, when you know, the um, immigration policy opened up for Asian immigrants. A lot of Korean came here, although they are knowledge workers, they became entrepreneurs. A lot of semi, a lot of them, them actually specializing in uh, wigs industry. That I had a recent article, very interesting. I read about that history. So, um, so I, I, but I do agree that because of the. Uh, Maoist uh, socialist eras where even in the village that I studied, for example, um, the entrepreneurship um, and also in Zhongguancun, right, was kind of suppressed. And uh, doing, uh, in, in, uh, after uh, China reopened, that uh, this, uh, this kind of trend also reopened the, that kind of entrepreneur urge, right, for people to, um, to, to start business and to uh, change their lifestyles, and also because of China's position in the international division of labor, that reintegration into global capitalism all also opened up a lot of entrepreneurial opportunities for Chinese uh, at that time. So I would say, um, I, w- I, d- I don't know how much of this is cultural, but definitely I think uh, material and uh, you know economic and political economic conditions uh, that really shaped you know, this kind of entrepreneurial um, drive of, of, of uh, the Chinese society. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Now, the, the book critiques um, China bashing, and you quote one interlocutor, Dan, mm. who says he wants to be seen in English media as, quote, like socialist scientists and engineers, those who sacrificed the personal interests of their small selves, mm. Xiaowo, Mm. Uh, to serve the collective interests of the nation, unquote. But I was wondering, is he really sacrificing his personal mm. interests? I did not see that in the book. <laughs> it, this reads to me like a culturally and politically acceptable justification for his personal wealth, uh-huh. not really a statement of economic fact. What sacrifices did uh, he make for the country? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you uh, read, um, you know, my struggle very well, actually. When I try to... Uh, introduce uh, his story. I also struggled as an ethnographer, you know, um, uh, you know, he was generous enough to give me access and, you know, tell me, share with me his um, experiences, his stories, and even some of like the emotion um, that he went through over the years. Um, and as a as ethnographer, uh, the kind of struggle between, you know, representing him for what he project himself to be, and also my understanding, right, after taking into all this kind of consideration of uh, the structural issues, and, you know, reading his representation of himself as a representation of our condition, right, trying to be critical of that right so I try to really strike a balance there and that's why I you know um, I and I, 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 I use a lot of his original words there and I, I ultimately I think I wanted to depict him as a real person with mixed motivations right so just like American entrepreneurs like Mark Zuckerberg who would at one minute be very enthusiastic about China and, you know, running, uh, jogging Tiananmen, and next minute citing, you know, nationalist, protectionist, um, 
um, you know, reasons to you know to to support uh, to 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 be anti-China and to support his own business. I think similar Dan is a person, <laughs> a complex person, a, a entrepreneur like Mark Zuckerberg. Although he's definitely not far from as successful as uh, as him. So in that way, nationalism for me in the book, uh, especially with his story, is both genuine emotion that people experience, but also it could be performative, right? Like in. Uh, winning him, um, you know, financial support as I mentioned, um, and and especially you can consider that sometimes he he would you know entrepreneurs I interview would treat me as a media person, right? So this they, they would think about what kind of media story I would write up for them, right? So um, and 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 um, but for him and other employee returnees, uh, overseas returnees, especially for those from uh, the U.S., I've interviewed many of them. I continue to interview them for my uh, next projects, actually focus on the U.S.-China entanglement in biotech. So I, I get to know more of the, what I call elite entrepreneurs in science, in engineering uh, that I, you know, in, in started already to start to to uh, you know um hang out with in the book so i think they do make some sacrifices in their own life for example he had to give up his green card a very comfortable and easy life in the u.s in the bay area <laughs> and uh and uh, and and he you know considering especially considering how hard for an ordinary Chinese like him who have worked, you know, up his way through all these kind of exams, right? Um, very selective process to go to the U.S. in the first place and earn a master's degree for him. And for a long time, I think until recently, people who return would also be, you know, looked upon as those who failed to launch a successful career in the U.S. I, I say until re- very recently because I see more more of them going back, and it it you know the legitimacy you know they gain legitimacy uh, with years, and when they return, uh, they definitely have to take risks, not just business risks, but also uncertain to navigate uncertain political environment that you know a lot of them left as students and they returned as a businessman right so they don't not not necessarily or 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 employee in the company they don't necessarily know how to navigate that kind of system based on guanxi on relationship um you know relationship with officials and for him, it's also interesting that he didn't return as an established person. That's usually the sort of tips people would give you. Don't return when you are young. Return when you are more established. He returned as a PG student to study with uh, a professor at Tsinghua that he really wanted to study. So, you know, Chinese academia is still very hierarchical. So he had to actually put up with a lot more challenges um, than he, um, you know, had to in, in the States. So, so um, and when I did my interview with people like him, you know, some and some some people tends to focus on more personal and individualistic uh, motivations, and some had bigger ambitions like him. Um, and I think you can say it's it's also kind of that justification mechanism that to help them, you know, rationalize their decisions of moving back, right? Because they are still in the process. For him, he's still in the process of setting up his uh, venture. It hasn't been really successful yet, 
right? Um, and I, I think, but he ultimately he also made a bet on China, for you know, continue to be prosperous, to become technological more competent in the process, and and you know, in the process because of his betting that people like him would also benefit from you know China's continuous uh, growth and expansion. And I know some people that I met actually regretted uh, they <laughs> returned. Uh, you know, if especially those in Shanghai who had to go through the the kind kind of prolonged quarantine, um, return to the U.S. Right, so you you see people really you know making yeah. decisions based on the kind of complex mechanism of um right. big and smaller considerations and try to you know yeah. really rationalize things. <laughs> okay, final question. Uh huh. You, you mentioned and let me quote you here in the book. Quote. The Taobao village phenomenon reached a fever pitch between 2014 and 2016. Unquote. So, what's the situation today? Yeah. So,、um, I think it's、um, development has become more moderate,、uh, especially after you know Ali is going through a restructuring at this moment. It's not an easy one, Alibaba. So、uh, they.、Uh, Unlike、uh, what I, you know, when I、uh, um, doing my field work, which happened between two thousand eleven and two thousand, mostly two thousand nineteen, right? At that time, Alibaba really invested more into expanding, but I think it didn't. It didn't disappear.、Uh, the village are still existence, and also、uh, what I've observed.、Uh, Over、uh, the summer、uh, this year, actually,、um, a few months ago, I I returned to China after you know four years of pandemic quarantine, and、um, and I I went to this time went to West China and uh, 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 Mid China to Wuhan, Chengdu, and uh, uh, and 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 Yunnan, where I learned that uh you know that the the West and Mid China became new. Area of growth for uh this kind of Taobao uh villages and whereas previously is mostly concentrated on the on the on the east coast, right? So definitely keep growing, um and and also there's changing technological conditions, um so uh websites or like Taobao or even Pinduoduo is kind of uh, uh lower. Uh, threshold, uh, uh, brother or something, <laughs> you can call it. And it's also the mother, uh, sister company of Temu, uh, Temu, uh, in China. Pinoduo, uh, they pretty much saturated, and now a short video size like Douyin and Kuaishou, uh, and new forms of selling like live streaming selling, uh, become the fad instead of traditional e-commerce. Right, so you'll see some of the most successful ones in, for example, the village I observed are live streamers, which require different set of skill sets. Right, so basically you have to learn how to present yourself,、um, you know, be interesting in the interactive、yeah. uh, mediated environment, and then I I think COVID nineteen also changed the sort of logistic conditions in a way that it made it so. Convenient that this kind of one village, one products, uh, um, model, uh, subsided, uh, 一村一品 and now you can basically I see villagers selling products from all over country and、uh, even some imported things, especially farm produce because of the coaching technology really made um you know selling farm produce. 
uh, easy. And you know, I I encounter someone in um in 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 Yunnan who are selling imported. Uh, durians from Malaysia, for example. So I think that's a sort of a new area for growth. Uh, and how is it changing? Farm produce has become the new, new thing. Uh, and and also you can basically sell everything from you know no matter where you are based because of the logistics. Yeah. Great. Thank you very much, Lin. And thank you for listening. You have just listened to Dr. Lin Zhang in Techno News. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Please send us your comments and suggestions in our website at scitechasia.org. Thank you.